While the gist is dedicated to explicit content, today we have left the profane fields to lay fallow. It's Wednesday, September 14th, 2022 from Peachfish Productions. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Headline, AP, an Australian man is killed by a kangaroo in a rare fatal attack. He was apparently keeping the kangaroo as a pet. The 77-year-old in the Perth area kept it as a pet. The AP contacting Tanya Irwin, who cares for macropods at the Native Animal Rescue Center in Perth, to say, kangaroos are not a cute animal, they're a wild animal. Tanya Irwin is wrong, they're both cute and wild, which may prompt certain 77-year-olds in the Australia continent to keep them as pets. I do like the idea of caring for macropods. I wonder if Tanya Irwin was the first person the AP contacted, or if she in fact bigfooted someone else in the macropod department. It's all fair in macropods and kangaroos. The sad thing about this man is that he died. Kangaroos have very sharp claws, extremely strong tails, and lethal rear claws. And this is why I want to articulate a rule of thumb, or if you're a kangaroo listening, a rule of rear claw. You do not, I do not, want to succumb to the sad butt death. Now, the sad butt death is not scatological at all. The sad butt death is when someone hears about your death or it is reported on the first reaction of 99% of the people will be sad, but I'll give you some sentences that correlate to the sad butt death. Chief among them, he was keeping it as a pet. That is a big sad butt death. Or he insisted the shoot was operational. Sad butt death. He was trying to prove the meat had not spoiled gives rise to several sad butt deaths a year. He had been spending a lot of time on the Q message boards, he claimed, for research. Thus, we might have another sad butt death. The AP also reported, I'm going back to the part of the headline, where they call it a rare kangaroo attack. They noted that in 1936, William Cruikshank died in a hospital in Hilston in New South Wales after he'd been attacked by a kangaroo. 1936. So this is what, 86 years ago? Yeah, could be 86 years ago. Could no kangaroos have caused or given rise to fatalities on the entire continent of Australia in that long a period of time? And we were talking about Australia, a place that's lousy with kangaroos, where people are apparently given to keeping the beasts as pets. So I looked it up. And I could not, I have to report, I could not find another instance of a kangaroo killing a person directly. But indirectly, there are many, many examples. I searched for fatal kangaroo and oh my, did I find example after example of a kangaroo hunt gone wrong where someone died. I'll just give you a few examples of these headlines from such places as the Farmer and Settler magazine, the Daily Telegraph of Sydney, the Angus, sorry, the Singleton Argus, which is different from the Simpleton Angus, stories like Fatal Kangaroo Hunt, Fatal Kangaroo Hunt Boy Shoots Brother, Fatal Kangaroo Hunt Adelaide, Accidents, Fatal Kangaroo Hunt, Fatal Kangaroo Drive, 
people left and right wanting to kill a kangaroo, just kill each other. There was also an actress who was trampled by a horse while she was shooting a scene depicting a kangaroo hunt. I've got to think, kangaroos, they're like villains in a funhouse where you never know who you're taking a swing at, and then you find your fist all cut up because the swing was at yourself. Only it's not a cut up fist. It is the loss of a life. Sad, but that's what you get when you tangle with the kangaroos. Kangaroos have been luring Australians to kill each other for years and years, almost a century, even more. It is a tragic way to reach one's end. Sad, but maybe somewhere between wholesale slaughter of the kangaroo and keeping them as a pet is the best strategy for kangaroo coexistence. On the show today, in the spiel, those damn MAGA nominees, or will MAGA damn their nominees? But first, George Will has been a columnist for 50 years come December, and he joins us to talk about his new book, American Happiness and Discontents, The Political Climate, and also a bit about fabrics, which is why you turn to George Will, who's up next. George Will pursues his craft with a trenchant elegance, and I should tell you, he has also worn a pair of blue jeans exactly once in his life. It's all divulged in his latest book, American Happiness and Discontents, The Unruly Torrent, 2008 through 2020. George F. Will, Pulitzer Prize winner, welcome back to The Gist. Can I begin with a small correction? I wore blue jeans when I was in the blue jean wearing cohort. That is, Uh when I turned 12 and decided to grow up. <laughs> so, as an adult, you've worn blue jeans once. Correct. Je- Senator Jack Danforth's 70th birthday party had a country western theme, and S- S- Jerry Jeff Walker sang Up Against the Wall, Redneck Mother, and other classics. And uh, blue jeans were pres- prescribed, so I-, I wore them. And did you feel uncomfortable the whole time, or as you were cosplaying, as it were? Yes, I did. <laughs> and do you think other people were looking at you saying, George Will in blue jeans? This does not compute. I hope so. Uh-huh. So starting in uh, 2008, the Obama administration, looking back from today, I, don't, I didn't see too many harsh criticisms of his personality. But do you look back and say just the decency, um, personal decency and ethics that he brought to the job, maybe we discounted uh, too much at the time? Certainly. Uh, retrospectively, that that looks like such an elusive, fleeting quality in people. Obama was a one- exemplary father. Uh, he was elegant in his public posture and his demeanor. I mean, just compare Obama doing anything to Trump sitting in a chair. Uh, sort of sprawling like the someone's described Putin as the surly kid in the back of the classroom. And that's that's often how uh, Mr. Trump looks. No, I, I, I think manners are terribly important and style and grace are important. They soften life and lubricate public life. And uh, I miss it. It's a dis- receding memory. 
Does this make you look back and reconsider any of his policies? I mean, it's hard to remember at the time, but I'm sure as a human being, you must have ascribed motivations to why he was pursuing policies. You weren't a computer simply saying, I don't like what the output's going to be. So I'm asking about retrospective reanalysis of not just Obama as a person, but what he was pursuing. I wouldn't change my assessment of things like the Affordable Care Act. I, his problem with his signature achievement, which was the Affordable Care Act, even more than Dodd-Frank, was that 90% of Americans had health care at the time and 90% of the 90% were happy with it. And therefore, he was trying to impose vast structural change on, on a, a, a basically contented nation, a, a much more targeted much more less, much less statist approach, such as health savings accounts, would have been much better. I haven't changed my my view of his his positions, although he was pretty good on immigration. I'm 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 for liberalized immigration policies. Uh, I think the immigrants need us not more than we need them at this point. And furthermore, I think immigration is an entrepreneurial act on the part of brave people who risk literally everything, including their lives, to get here. And uh, I want more of them, lots more of them. The word discontent is in the book. What about that? And here's what I think of Obama, where it combines his affect with his policies. When he was president, and a lot of this is due to the fact that we weren't so inundated with social media, but America was not at war with ourselves. There was a general sentiment of, and if you look at the polls, it doesn't literally say right direction, but there was a contentedness. And Obama wasn't constantly tonguing at the uh, tooth with the cavity, and he wasn't constantly provoking. And this wasn't just his personal style. This literally were, was the policies he pursued, and he would go out of his way in rhetoric, but also in policy, to make the point that we are achieving progress as a country, progress on things that he would know about, like uh, racial issues, um, issues like uh, gay marriage, obviously. And I think it was of a piece with his personality, but also a part of his policy. And I think we took it for granted then. And looking back, I regard it as one of his great achievements. It was, but it was also a shared temperament at that time. It's, it's well to remember. Look at John McCain's extraordinarily gracious concession speech after the 2008 election. When he said, this is a great night for America, and there are Americans rejoicing in a way that few of us can understand. Uh, so both parties had a vocabulary of civility then that that uh, it, it strikes us as tragically anachronistic now. You know, when you talk about our national temperament, there is a cause and effect. Yes, Donald Trump took advantage of our discontents, but it was also such a great cause of them, though. Oh, uh, of course. One of the, the lessons of Donald Trump is the extraordinary power of one person with a big enough megaphone to change the tone of the country. That's the bad news. The good news is if he could do it, someone with an opposite temperament might be able to do it. Someone is going to come along. The market demands it and then the political market will supply it. Is going to come along and say, all right, everybody, deep breath, simmer down. This person is going to quote the last few paragraphs of Lincoln's first inaugural, we are not enemies, we must not be enemies. 
Lincoln said that at a time when seven states had already voted to secede, when Arlington Heights uh, were about to bristle with Confederates, uh, it's possible to keep your composure and to tell the American people that they're more excitable than they should be. You wrote about marijuana legalization. You wrote this about 10 years ago. And looking back, you you predicted that uh, the United States should not go about this experiment as if they as if we were conducting an experiment, you know, when you're talking about something so high stakes, don't think of what you're doing in national policy as a laboratory. You also predicted looking at 7% addiction rates for say alcoholism if you transpose that on marijuana and drug legalization, it would be a horror. I don't think that uh, marijuana legalization or decriminalization has delivered all that was promised, especially uh, tax revenue in many states. But I don't think it was the either boondoggle or bane that you predicted. Looking back, do you stand by that column? I do. Uh, I think what we're doing is essentially what a federal republic ought to do, which is allow, in Brandeis's terms, the states to be laboratories of democracy. Let's good. Colorado, give it a try. And we're going to watch from a distance and see what you learn. And it's frankly, it's too too soon to say what we're learning about this. Not just the financial yields and the revenue yields to government, but also uh, the extent to which, maybe minimal, maybe large, marijuana turns out to be a gateway drug. Now, I, I, I'm, I'm not heavily invested in this argument. I had lunch once with a, one of the very leading American experts on addiction, and I said, just in the course of conversation, that I'd never tried marijuana, which is still true. I am of the gin generation. And he shook his head and said, ah, gin, a much more dangerous drug. Of course it is. Uh, but it's too late. If the question today was, we haven't ever tried legalizing alcohol, let's try it. Now, I'm not sure we would, knowing what we do about the, the staggering social costs of alcohol. But there it is. The question is, do we want to do we want something else? So I'm, all I'm saying is jury's still out. Let Colorado and a few other states uh, tiptoe across, into this territory and we'll watch what happens. Do you think if you'd been more of the wearing blue jeans predilection, you'd have smoked marijuana in your life? <laughs> Not as long as there are martinis. <laughs> What's the best fabric to experience a martini with? Uh, gray flannel. Mm -hmm. Often in the book, specifically you talk about the coarsening of the culture and the culture that is coarse. And there are whole chapters on culture and that idea is shot throughout. But my, I agree with you to some extent, but I wouldn't put my finger on things as the problem these days with being the culture is coarse. I think the cultural problem we most face isn't a problem of giving offense. It's our problem of the fear of offense. So a movie like Animal House is coarse, but I love it. And I think these days, many portions of Animal House would be objected to, taken out, and it would make a movie like Animal House uh, less effective. What do you think of that? Yeah, the problem isn't giving offense. The problem is taking offense. We have exquisitely raw sensibilities on the part of many people who I think only feel alive when they're angry and offended and allowing this to bleed over into all-purpose victimhood. Uh, we live in a country in which the archivist put a trigger warning on the Declaration of Independence. Now, 
what's that tell you? It tells you that, that people are so proud of being easily offended, proud of being potential victims of feeling bad or having their feelings hurt. Uh, it, it's just absurd. What we want are, are, is, an, is a nation of boisterous stand-up comedians who don't have to worry about what they're, they're saying. Life is funny if you let it be. Well, uh, there should be a trigger warning on the Constitution. It's called the Second Amendment, almost literally. But the problem with critiquing coarsening is what is coarsening? It's being bumpy, the smooth glide path of experiencing art sometimes gets disturbed. And so one person's coarsening on the side of maybe something that, you know, you would object to in terms of sexual libertinism. Another person might see it as coarsening, you know, oh, I don't want to be triggered when it comes to a joke that offends my sensitive worldview. So that's why I would say I would prefer a culture that's coarse to a culture that seeks to make everything totally smooth. I'd like to go behind door three, if I might. Okay. <laughs> I, will Monty, I will be Monty Hall for this exercise. We can only have a sense of coarsening and coarseness if we also have a sense of elegance and, uh, and decorum, if you will. Uh, what what's worrisome is not that coarseness exists, but that we have no sense of what makes it coarse, what coarseness contrasts with. That's what we want to preserve. Uh, we don't we we don't want to sandpaper all the rough edges out of life. They they make life interesting, but we we want to maintain some standard to which we can repair. Part of the problem with those who want to be transgressive these days is there are no lines to transgress anymore. I feel sorry for the, the faculty radicals from coast to coast who's, who yearn to be transgressive and can't find anything to transgress, the poor darlings, because uh, there are no standards left. We filled the world with Groucho Marxes and we have no Margaret Dumont's. Yes. What is your opinion of monarchies? Great question today, and, and, and this, in the aftermath of the death of Queen Elizabeth, monarchy is just objectively a residue of humanity's infancy. Uh, monarchy about 800 years ago, and beyond that even, uh, solved a problem that we didn't yet know how to. So, which is, what do you do? Where do you locate sovereignty, and how do you justify it? The answer was kings, and you justify it by saying God wants them. Uh, well, uh, fewer and fewer people believe in God, and almost none, few people who believe in God believe in God that God cares particularly about the House of Windsor or any other residue. Changed in a PR rebranding exercise, the name there, <laughs> we should note. I'm with Tom Paine, who said that the idea of an inheriting a government office is like having a, an inherited poet or an inherited mathematician. It's absurd. Uh, so... It, when you, when you watched the stuff, the wonderful ceremony after the death of Queen Elizabeth, it was all fun to watch and you admire the British touch with this stuff as long as you don't think about it. If you think about King Charles III as defender of the faith, I mean, we, we, one of the things we marvel at was all that wonderful Anglican liturgy. Of course, no one goes to the Church of England services in England. 
those are those are bare ruined choirs, uh, empty churches. But so, but that's why I say just don't think about it and enjoy the spectacle. But if you think about it, understand that we have outgrown this stuff. How will King Charles III use his power? You and I have more power in Britain than he does. You and I can publish or broadcast things in England, trying to change public opinion there. If he so much as utters a peep about that, that would be anti-constitutional behavior on his part. You have a column where you talk about fascism and you talk about Donald Trump and you conclude after talking about who the real fascists were, Mussolini and Franco, uh, fascism is more interesting than Trumpism. That's a fine point. I don't begrudge you that as a columnist, but if I were to press you and to say, is Trump a fascist or semi-fascist or some other category that is important to uh, understand as it relates to fascism, what would you say? I'd say that there is a continuum in politics and he's somewhere on the continuum. I'd say he's in the outer suburbs of something like fascism, particularly when he, when he is tapping into something from the left that the right is now indulging in identity politics, thinking of people not as discrete rights-bearing individuals, but as members of ethnic, racial, religious something groups, uh, and saying the state ought to be used to preserve the primacy or the purity of these groups in society. That's, that, that, that You begin to develop a vocabulary that is uh, that draws you into the mentality of something that looks a lot like uh, crypto fascism. Fellow traveler is a useful uh, phrase from the anti-communist days that there's such a thing as a fascist fellow traveler. And finally, other than as a child or for athletic endeavors, have you ever worn sweatpants? What? Sweatpants. What are sweatpants? You've heard of sweatpants. You're part of the culture, sir. And I've actually seen them on airline passengers in to get back to where we began with the coarsening of culture. Uh, I don't own any, but uh, I've seen them. George F. Will writes a twice-weekly syndicated column on politics, domestic and foreign affairs, and I should say the culture for the Washington Post. The column began in the Post in 1974. His latest book is American Happiness and Discontents, The Unruly Torrent, 2008 to 2020. George Will, thank you very much. Enjoyed it. Do it again. And now the spiel. 54 days, we have 54 days to know what to make of it all. Can we wait 54 days for a judgment to be rendered on the partial takeover of one political party by the anti-democratic forces who pay fealty to Donald Trump? Because right now, there are two possibilities. The MAGA candidates who have secured spots as nominees in crucial House, Senate, and state races represent a grave threat. That's one. Or putting these nominees forward instead of, say, actual Republicans who are normal, who will win, that represents a grave error. The careless, dissolute nature of Donald Trump's ego-inflected strategy will doom either him or us. Let's recap. Across America, there are seats 
either held or contested by Democrats that would and should be vulnerable to quality Republican candidates. But in so many instances, those quality candidates were defeated by Trump-eyed goons or supplicants who have less skill, less support, and less appeal to the electorate. But that doesn't mean they still can't win. In some safe House seasons, the goons will certainly win. But in Senate races in Georgia, Ohio, Pennsylvania, and Arizona to take four, neophyte showmen with the Trump blessing have been nominated where a more experienced normal politician might have had, probably would have had a much better chance in the general. And after last night, add to that list, General Don Baldick, election denier, Republican nominee for Senate. General Don Baldick. I didn't spend my life defending this country to let a bunch of liberal socialist pansies squander it away. I'm Don Baldwin. I approve this message, and I'm asking for your vote. In Mehmet Oz and Blake Masters, we have a bold duck and an odd duck, so why not a Baldock? A man who says coronavirus vaccines contain microchips and contends that the popular Republican governor is a Chinese sympathizer, meaning a Baldock antipathizer. In point of fact, Trump didn't specifically endorse the former general, though he likes the man's toughness and certainly his election interpretation. There are other nuances to the rule of thumb that Trump-backed extremists are bad candidates with less of a chance of winning than moderate alternatives. In Nevada, Adam Laxalt finally fits the Trump-backed election-denying extremist label, but he does have statewide elected experience, he does have a recognized family name, and he does have at least some clue about how government should work, could work. In Wisconsin, the Republican with wacky beliefs in a case of Trumpophilia is the two-term incumbent, Senator Ron Johnson, who was first elected in 2010, the year Trump called WikiLeaks, quote, disgraceful, and recommended, well, we have the tape. Uh, claim it'll be on. He's going to talk about WikiLeaks. You had nothing to do with the leaking no, of those documents. Disgraceful. You do think it's disgraceful? Think, yeah, this should be like death penalty or something. Another wrinkle is that in some cases, the Democrat wanted to oppose the MAGA-backed candidate. They wanted the MAGA-backed candidate to win the nomination. That's because the perception was MAGA-backed candidates represent weaker opposition. They will strike the electorate as unelectable. Some Democrats did the double bank shot attempt of taking out ads that would tie a potential opponent who was running in the primary, tie that opponent to Donald Trump. And that was always true. And it sometimes worked to select that opponent as the one who the Democrat would face in the general. Here's how some of those ads sounded. Are pro-Trump Republican Darren Bailey's policies too conservative for Illinois? John Gibbs is too conservative for West Michigan. Handpicked by Trump to run for Congress, Gibbs called Trump the greatest president. Meet Dan Cox, Donald Trump's handpicked candidate for Maryland governor. Cox worked with Trump, trying to prove the last election was a fraud. If Mastriano wins, it's a win for what Donald Trump stands for. Is that what we want in Pennsylvania? The Gibbs-Trump agenda is too conservative for West Michigan. Dan Cox, too close to Trump, too conservative for Maryland. Now, none of the Senate races were affected by this dynamic, but Gibbs there, he did get the nominee in a House race in Michigan. But you have no doubt heard the charge that Democrats just should not be doing this while at the same time contending that MAGA Republicans are an existential threat to our democracy. In some state races for governor, Maryland, Illinois, Pennsylvania, Democratic governors just couldn't pass up the chance to run against candidates they saw as weaker, and weaker does mean more extremist, and 
What's an extremist? Well, lurking out there on the extremes is the citrus-hued man in the copious necktie. We have 54 days to know who's right. If the extremists are all burned up in a ball of their own fire, we could say good strategy, questionable ethics. I mean, we can question the ethics as an academic exercise. Politicians will say, yeah, but we won. A decent counter would be for a successful Democrat who tried this strategy to say, what's good for the country is Democrats like me winning elections. If the Senate is held by Democrats, that same argument will obtain. I know it's anxiety producing to read and hear about all these candidates who deny the last election who are running for this one. But losing at the polls, were they to lose at the polls, would put a damper on, if not a stake through the heart, of these contentions. No longer would it be considered or it would be less likely to be considered by Republicans who actually want to win elections as an acceptable argument. If holding these views means you could get the nomination, but never the actual seat, then they're going to stop getting the nomination. Donald Trump is not an idiot. He can be clever in a reptilian way, but he is not a great strategist. He is a grand egotist, and he hurt his party in the past by campaigning on the theme of, they're throwing away your vote. He put that argument forward in those two Georgia Senate seats in 2020. It's scary how effective he and the Kraken communication squad were at convincing voters that they are not counting your votes. But it must have been maddening to the two actual Republican candidates in those races that they were making that argument right before saying, so vote for Kelly and David, even though they're not counting your votes. And Trump screwing up the strategy is why you felt any measure of relief when the Senate passed the Inflation Reduction Act, which really was, as Joe Biden said, the biggest step forward ever on climate change. Trump did record that one famous shocking result back in 2016. You might remember it. We all remember it. It makes us think that what looks like madness might resonate with an America we find hard to understand. So maybe we tend to attribute to him mystical qualities. Here's a guy who seems to operate outside the bounds of political sense, but maybe he doesn't. Most likely, what we're going to see in 54 days is some mixed results. Some MAGA candidates will blow their shot, some will win soundly, and then there'll be a lot of debate if absent Trump, they would have connected with the electorate anyway. 54 days. We'll know a lot more and be able to render the verdict on the election as either a near miss we're nearing closer to the abyss. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara, just assistant producer, favors the Tulsa tuxedo denim top, denim bottom, or occasionally on weekends, match separates, but definitely denim. Joel Patterson, just senior producer, has never worn an adult onesie in anything but burlap. Michelle Pesca, COO of Peachfish Productions, has not worn taffeta since the Alice in Wonderland-themed bat mitzvah. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperu, jeeperu, and thanks for listening. <laughs>